Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. This is another special episode of Long Reads looking at Israel's war on Gaza. Our focus today is on the politics of the Biden administration and its backing for Israel. Biden and his team are still giving their firm support to Benjamin Netanyahu as he talks about a war lasting for many months. With the presidential election due in the fall, there appear to be strong echoes of Lyndon Johnson and Vietnam in 1968. Akbar Shahid Ahmed is the senior diplomatic correspondent for the Huffington Post. He's been following Joe Biden's policy and the dissent among US government officials. We spoke on Tuesday, January 2nd, shortly after an Israeli bomb attack that killed a Hamas leader in Beirut, sparking fears of a wider escalation. Thanks a lot for joining us. I just want to ask you to begin with, on the eve of the October 7th attack, what was the general outlook of the Biden administration towards the Middle East and towards Israel in particular? Some of the issues that were in play, there was talk about normalisation between Israel and Saudi Arabia, building on the previous agreements with other Arab states. What was the thinking of Biden and his team around that? What was their attitude to the government formed by Netanyahu? And how did they see the Middle East in a wider global context? So it's it's useful to begin with two points, I think, to understand how the administration came in here. The first is the role of Israel in the Democratic primary of 2020, where we really did see a shift towards a more questioning approach to the U.S. relationship with Israel. And the Biden team was very aware of this, right? So they were conscious that they had this more maybe energized, maybe more pro-Palestinian Democratic primary base. And they said, we are going to do stuff on this file that Trump has not done. We are going to prioritize the two-state solution, et cetera, et cetera. They started from a base of Trump has gone so totally pro-Israel, not just pro-Israel, but pro-Netanyahu in particular. We are going to be the reverse of that. So they made these promises. But importantly, Daniel, they didn't make a lot of specific promises, right? They sort of made hopeful noises. But when it came to actual questions of Trump policy changes that were quite shocking, really changed the status quo and made peace harder to achieve, Biden never made specific promises to walk any of that back. So now I'm thinking about specifics, for instance, like recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel without recognizing it also as the capital of a Palestinian state, having a consulate to the Palestinians, something that the U.S. had prior to Donald Trump, calling Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank illegal, which they are under international law, which the U.S. has always said. Trump reversed that. Biden took no movement on it. Once they came into office, Biden's team were very, as your listeners know, no doubt know, they certainly see themselves as the adults in the room and take themselves quite seriously. So the people closest to the president, the president and Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken, to some extent, wanted to do the big boy stuff, right? They wanted to focus on strategic competition with China. They wanted to focus on Europe. Of course, the Ukraine invasion happened in 2022. And the idea was we want to keep the Middle East and definitely this file off the president's table. We do not want Biden to be the one 
having to think about this, having to make progress on it, and very much they didn't want to really change much, right? There wasn't political will. Um, there was kind of hope because there were, for the first time, a couple of years when Netanyahu was not prime minister, first time in more than a decade. So there was a sense of that's kind of encouraged us, not Netanyahu government, but also not ask them to do too much for the Palestinians in case it undermines them at home. All of that brings us to October 6th, at which point the U.S., you know, has a pretty bad relationship with the Palestinians. To your point about the Middle East in a broader context, the one file that Biden and his team were interested in was repairing U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia, something they have done to an extent. They haven't gotten what they thought they'd get out of it uh, in terms of lower oil prices. And then bringing forward to the period immediately after the October 7th attack, because the early response of the Biden administration is very important in terms of, first of all, shaping the terrain and shaping what's going to happen and also establishing a kind of path dependency for their later actions and their later orientation. So what would you say were the main factors shaping that response? What was the thinking of Biden and his team? And what role was played by Biden's own particular personal attitude towards Israel? Human sympathy, really, which is a totally understandable reaction, of course, right? The October 7th the details, the footage, the, the scope of it, the fact that it was the biggest attack on Jews since the Holocaust, I think that was deep, deep, deep shock in Washington and certainly within the administration. Does that raise a question of should people have maybe expected something like this to happen after years of growing resentment? But they didn't, right? So they came in with, we need to support Israel. We want to demonstrate that we are with them 1,000%. And that very much came from the president himself, right? This is someone who has been visiting Israel, working on foreign policy issues for 50 years, right? Can recall meeting Golda Meir, the famous prime minister of Israel in the 60s and 70s. 50 years ago as a young senator, I was sitting across from Golda Meir at her desk in her office. And she had a guy named, a guy who later became prime minister, sit next to me. And he very much has this image of Israel from that period, which is of a small country surrounded by enemies, right, that not many people in its neighborhood want to see around, and certainly a country founded by many people who had fled immense tragedy in Europe, right, and had fled the Holocaust. So the president's own sense of we must be with them directed the policy from what I've heard from people inside the administration at multiple national security agencies, the feeling was even strategic analysts, national security experts who would be kind of taking a little more of a rational step back, uh, where does the planning go here, were kind of told, or, or got the impression certainly, that that wasn't what the president and the administration wanted, right? What was wanted was to demonstrate support unconditional, overwhelming, huge, let's not think too much about where that goes from here. You need not be a Jew to be a Zionist. The connection between the Israeli people and the American people is bone deep. We invest in each other. Israel is essential to the security of Jews worldwide. I'll say this 5,000 times in my career, the ironclad commitment the United States has to Israel based on our 
principles, our ideas, our values, are the same values. And uh, I've often said, if there were not in Israel, we'd have to invent one. Um, and that started to, to disturb a lot of people, right? A lot of people who said, well, there are consequences, not just for Israel, not just for Palestinians, not just for Gaza, but for U.S. interests, right? For U.S. security and also certainly for the U.S. desire not to see a huge regional war. In terms of personnel, who have been the key figures alongside Biden himself? Could you talk a little bit about the role that's played by Antony Blinken, for example, but also by Brett McGurk, could you give a little bit of a background perhaps on McGurk in particular for people who might not be familiar with the role that he's played over the last few years and over the last two or three months? So Anthony Blinken, of course, running the State Department, long-serving aide to Biden, personally very close to him. Uh, and he's been the face of US actions here. He's been in back and forth to Israel and around the region something like six or seven times now in three months. He's very much the driving force in terms of the implementation and to some extent the decision-making, but decisions are still very much made by the president, informed by Blinken, Jake Sullivan, and a couple of others, I would say, maybe maybe Lloyd Austin, Defense Secretary to some extent. Then there's Brett McGurk, uh, who, you know, I, I'm envious of your audience for not knowing as much about him as I have had to come to know uh, Brett McGurk is the White House coordinator for the Middle East, a job that means he really has a broad portfolio, stretching from Yemen all the way to Morocco. His defining agenda since entering office with Biden uh, in January 2021 has been a different U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia and a historic agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel with the idea being Saudi has become the heavyweight in the Muslim-majority world. In a way, it really wasn't. I mean, it's important to understand historically that role was played by Egypt. To some extent, other countries were the hub of the Arab world, but now with just Saudi money and then also the diminished influence of other players, the Saudis are the, the big player. They are the big boys in the room. And for Brett McGurk, who is very much attracted to power, that is someone he wants to, to really have a close relationship with. Um, McGurk is interesting, Daniel, because he's a very smooth operator. He gets things done. He knows the inner workings of bureaucracy. He has been in Middle East policymaking roles since George W. Bush. He's one of really like a, a handful of people, you can count them on your fingers, who have served Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden working on the same portfolio, I would invite you to consider what the U.S. has done in the Middle East in that time and whether you want that person in charge. While all this has been unfolding, you've reported and others have reported on dissent within the State Department in particular among long-time serving U.S. government officials who, by the nature of their work and their employment, are not the sort of people who are inherently uncomfortable or dissenting towards U.S. foreign policy. And yes, uh, they, they have been expressing dissent, some going so far as to resign from their positions, others expressing dissent through the internal channels of the State Departments and so on. Could you say, first of all, what is the nature of that dissent? What are the criticisms that they've been putting forward? Is it truly novel and 
almost unique in terms of what has happened with previous wars and major foreign policy flashpoints. And what is the impact that it's had, if any, on the policy of the Biden administration? So the first big instance, which really shocked me, I I can't even tell you, and I broke the story, was uh, a veteran State Department official overseeing weapons transfers. Not a faint-hearted dude, right? Uh, Josh Paul resigned. Uh, He'd been for 11 years running weapons sales, including to Saudi Arabia and many other countries with questionable uses of American weaponry. And when I got the tip that he was resigning was when I I really started to feel, oh, that's something deep here and novel, to your point, right? So someone like Josh Paul, hardened diplomat, uh, um, has served under multiple administrations, saying, to me, the important part was this feeling of, quote, I can't shift the needle, right? The idea that because the president was so focused on telegraphing support for Israel and directing support for Israel, no matter what Israel chose to do with that support, people inside the government felt they couldn't even shape policy at all, right? So Josh Paul was the most high-profile resignation. I broke that news on, like, October 18th. Since then, we haven't seen high-profile resignations, and there's a number of reasons for that. It's hard to resign. It's scary. Certainly, if you resign in this period, uh, even if you don't say it's about Israel, uh, it's hard to avoid that assumption, which can be very toxic for the rest of your career. And then, of course, uh, you know, as you know, federal employees uh, are, 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 are sort of cautious by nature, and they have benefits and things like that. All that to say, a lot of people have been using these internal channels, which is novel. The way I I am hearing it from people inside the State Department is they haven't seen this degree of uproar since the Iraq invasion, so 20 years ago, right? And this is manifesting in memos that are going up to the Secretary of State, to Tony Blinken, and will be kept. And actually, Blinken has a requirement on the State Department policy to respond to those memos. So these memos are saying... You know, there are many reasons to question uh, the manner of the Israeli offensive, right? So many of these people, the vast majority would say, look, we understand Israel wants to retaliate against Hamas. Truly brutal, horrifying shock attack. Does it need to respond in this way, right? Where we are now more than 20,000 Palestinians dead, Gaza besieged for more than three months. And so what these memos are saying is, we will pay the price of this, uh, the US, I mean, as seen as, you know, is... Israel's chief supplier, benefactor, diplomatic cover. The U.S. will pay a price in terms of its reputation and the risks it faces. They're saying uh, this could be a strategic disaster for Israel itself, right? Which the U.S. has a huge commitment to defending. Uh, And if Israel is kind of sowing the seeds of future conflict and future risks for itself, that will necessarily embroil the U.S. And could upend a whole host of issues. Um, people will point to things like the disruption of shipping, um, of course, to concerns about war crimes, right, and how international law is violated. We're, we're looking at huge allegations of Israeli violations of international humanitarian law. There's a the huge specter of ethnic cleansing that the U.S. could be a handmaiden to if Israel does succeed, as some officials are suggesting, in pushing tens of thousands of people out of Gaza. These are real risks for the U.S. and for anyone interested in foreign policy that have ramifications far beyond. They have ramifications for the Ukraine conflict. Uh, Many of these diplomats have noted 
that it, it makes it harder for the U.S. to advocate for Ukraine when it's seen as supporting uh, Israeli actions that are akin to some of Russia's excesses. And it has ramifications for U.S. policy in Asia, right, which is supposed to be the real focus of the next few decades of foreign policy. One particular issue that I want to bring up in terms of how Biden himself responded to Israel's war came towards the end of October when, first of all, Joe Biden and then the following day, his spokesman, John Kirby, cast doubt on the casualty figures that were being released from Gaza. Biden said that he had no confidence in these figures. Kirby doubled down on that. Kirby spoke about the health ministry in Gaza as being a front for Hamas. And there was a very palpable shift in much of the media coverage afterwards. It became standard after that to refer to the health ministry as the Hamas-run health ministry or the Hamas-controlled health ministry. Now, there was a story that appeared in the Washington Post during the period of the temporary truce, which said that within 24 hours of having made these comments, Biden privately walked them back. He was having a meeting with representatives of Muslim American groups and he said that he was disappointed in himself and that he would do better in future. Now, that may have been the discussion in private and it may have been reported on by the Post um, some weeks later. And so to some extent, it's on the public record, but there hasn't been any public statement from Biden himself or from representatives of the government clarifying their position on the casualty figures. Has there been any discussion around that, any pressure from within to say whether or not they they consider those figures to be uh, credible and, and authoritative? I think we have to see the conversation about the numbers, which is truly shocking to observers and deeply hurtful to Palestinians, not to mention millions and millions of people who are sympathetic to them. We have to see that in the context of Biden having this old school approach, right, in which for years and years, it's been very common among certain more intensely pro-Israel figures in the conversation to really treat any Palestinian claim as spurious, uh, potentially propagandistic in a way that, you know, skepticism is cautioned by anyone and towards anyone in the fog of war, but it's, it's excessive. So I think that really is what the president that's how he thinks, right? It just seems honest. So I don't think we'll see a walk back. I think privately, the president does not want to lose whatever Muslim support he still retains, uh, particularly in key states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia. But in terms of the internal dynamics around it, I mean, that was a breaking point for a lot of people inside the government, right? I mean, people not just at the State Department, other national security agencies, because I mean, they do the analysis, right? They do the caveats. They know, okay, yes, there's there's no denying there are scores of Hamas employees in the health ministry. Hamas has controlled Gaza since 2007, right? There's, there Obviously, there are many Hamas officials. It's still the best and most reliable source of knowledge. And it's one that the State Department internally relies on all the time without using caveats. So, you know, I got this tranche of diplomatic cables where they were constantly relying on them. What's so telling about it, Daniel, and and chilling in a way is that after this, two days after the president's comments, amid the uproar, one thing I learned was that actually State Department employees were being asked to find other sources for casualties. So rather than sort of acknowledge and say, well, maybe we got this wrong, we actually have relied on these numbers, 
some people in the, on the political side at the State Department said, let's try to, it's a PR game, right? So let's just try to back up what the president said, even if we are relying on even more dodgy data. Shortly before Christmas, State Department spokesman Matthew Miller boasted in a press conference about the work his government was doing to help civilians in Gaza. Well, you say that opening Karim Shalom improves the lives of the Palestinians in Gaza, but wouldn't not killing them improve the lives of Palestinians in Gaza? I think uh, Hamas surrendering and could and well, stopping you know using them, well, stopping. There's no reason why it can't happen. I mean, as much well, as people call on Israel to take steps, Hamas has bears responsibility okay. here, and Hamas stopping using them as human as human shields uh, when Israel is trying to target Hamas for the attacks it conducted uh, on October 7th would also do a great deal uh, right. to protect innocent you would Palestinian accept, civilians. You would accept, wouldn't you, that it doesn't matter how much humanitarian aid is going in if everyone's dead. It is a very difficult situation we are in right now. We are trying to accomplish two things. Number one, to minimize civilian harm, to work with the Israeli government and the Israeli military on steps that they can take to protect civilians, including establishing deconfliction sites, and also to get humanitarian assistance in. That is also important uh, uh, to ensure that the Palestinian civilians who are there have food, water, medicine, other kinds of Now, one point that it's almost difficult to remember now, although it was just a few weeks ago. But there was, of course, a temporary truce between the Israeli military and Hamas in order to facilitate an exchange of prisoners. And it led to the release of a fairly sizable group of Israeli hostages and a somewhat larger group of Palestinians as well. Was there any thought within the Biden administration at that point or any doubts as to whether it was wise to support Israel in the resumption of a, a full-scale war with the explicit goal of eliminating Hamas, whether this was perhaps an off-ramp, so to speak, from continuing down that path? No, <laughs> is the short answer. No, no, because there is no real feeling at the most senior decision-making levels of the US government right now that the U.S. will stop support for Israel in this campaign. They may want Israel to pursue the campaign differently, but they're not. Their desire to do that is so much weaker than the desire to continue supporting Israel, right, that that's not going to be the overwhelming desire. And I think the way what you saw in that, Daniel, and what, what was really telling was immediately after the collapse of the ceasefire, you suddenly saw U.S. officials, without providing public evidence, making these claims that the ceasefire collapsed because, to put it bluntly, this was the implication of what they said, because they said Hamas wanted to sexually assault hostages, right? And you saw this line come out again and again from U.S. officials, Israeli officials, saying Hamas wants to keep young women. They don't want these young women to come out. And suddenly the fog of, like, why did the ceasefire collapse? What was... What were the actual sticking points in diplomatic negotiations and what could have been done to continue this, maybe get more hostages home, maybe get more aid into Gaza? All of that conversation disappeared because suddenly we were having a very different conversation about sexual and gender-based violence, an important conversation, but one that that did seem to, to kind of be strategically deployed to change the conversation and the narrative. On that point about shifting towards a different kind of campaign, a different kind of war, we can come to that in a moment. But just one more specific thing that I wanted to bring up, which was that 
in addition to those comments about the casualty figures, while Israel was in the course of attacking Al-Shifa Hospital, which was something that was happening in plain sight, you know, it was a, a declared military objective of the Israeli armed forces, there was a fairly intense propaganda effort by Benjamin Netanyahu and by other Israeli officials to promote the idea that Hamas was using this hospital in particular and other hospitals as a, a military installation, as a command and control center. Now, just before Christmas, the Washington Post published another article which concluded, having assessed all the evidence presented by Israel, um, that, that the the bar had not been cleared. The evidence of it having been used as a as a Hamas base or a control center was lacking. Now, Joe Biden had specifically claimed um, that the U.S. government had intelligence of its own to confirm that claim. The first war crime is being committed by Hamas by having their headquarters, their military, hidden under a hospital. And that's a fact. That's what's happened. So again, has there been any question of walking back that position? Has there been any hesitation to accept um, Israeli claims about other um, targets being used by Hamas as, as command and control centres or whatever the formulation might be? Or is it, in effect, full steam ahead? I think there's a bit of hesitation. Like, there are elements of the intelligence community who are tracking these things as well, right? And they, you know, Hamas is a U.S.-listed terrorist organization, so it is also U.S. intelligence's job to know what Hamas is up to. And I think there is discomfort. There is a sense that the Israelis overstate their case, overstate their claims, maybe working not from strategic reasons, but more from vengeance reasons or whatever other reasons they may have, right, for targeting specific things. But it it just goes to show you how much of this is political um, and there's not a political will. We are seeing U.S. government claims that the president and Tony Blinken and others are being tougher on Israel and that they are doing what they can to lean on Israel to be more humane in this mission. But there has been no instance in the three months we've been in this war where the U.S. has in any meaningful way pulled support, refused support, or even publicly reprimanded Israel. It's come close to saying, we would like you to not violate international humanitarian law. We expect you to not. Things should change. But the, you know, that's, that's words, right? And in terms of actual action, uh, what we've seen is continued influxes of U.S. weaponry. I mean, just in recent days, we've seen now twice the Biden administration bypassed congressional oversight of weapon sales to rush emergency weapons to Israel. And that's, again, that is creating huge discomfort. One of the things I reported in December and is becoming relevant right now in early January as we see tensions grow in Lebanon is that U.S. officials and a number of national security agencies were worried Israel's requests for weapons were not actually for Gaza or Hamas, but were for a war in Lebanon against Hezbollah another group linked to Hamas. Now, these U.S. officials are well aware of the capabilities Israel is requesting, etc., but the approvals are so, so way up the chain, right? And that's why there's still a blank check for Israel. Yeah, that brings on the, the point about a change in the nature of the, the campaign, the nature of the war, if not an end to the war itself, where, again, in the weeks leading up to Christmas, we saw reports that Anthony Blinken, for example, had said to the Israelis, 
once you get into the new year, there's going to have to be a transition towards a lower intensity campaign, more targeted, moving away from what Biden himself referred to as indiscriminate bombing and towards more select, precisely targeted operations against Hamas forces and Hamas leaders. But did he misspeak yesterday when he said that uh, Israel was carrying out indiscriminate attacks? The president speaks for American foreign policy. The president speaks and has spoken in about our concerns over civilian casualties in Gaza and about urging our Israeli counterparts to be more careful and more deliberate. You just said he speaks for foreign policy and he said yesterday that there were indiscriminate attacks, which to the rest of the world is a war crime. Are we at this point, we're now two days into the new year, are we seeing any shifts in that direction? And is there any sign that if the Israeli government and Israeli military doesn't shift towards the more low intensity campaign, that the patience of the Biden administration will run out and and we may finally begin to see that kind of pressure that, as you say, has been lacking so far? I would phrase it not as the patience of the Biden administration as much as almost their fear, right? I think that they are they are juggling their own competing instincts and they are truly afraid of being seen as being tough on Israel, right? They are afraid that that will cost them politically in the US. They are afraid that that will anger the president personally. I think that's that's what we're, we need to measure if that runs out. We have seen a directive from the Israelis to pull out some troops from northern Gaza. But all of that said, we are at the same time hearing the Israelis say we want to go more into southern Gaza and in fact take control of the Gazan border with Egypt. Now, important to remember, that's where they told the more than 80% of Gaza's population who are displaced to go. So now if they go in a place which is more populated even than the north, where they already went and, and it was so costly, I don't see how that can be done in any sort of strategic targeted way because their stated goal is not to kill XYZ Hamas leader in southern Gaza. Their stated goal is to take control of the southern border. Um, so I don't, I don't know. And in terms of what signs of U.S. pressure, I think the other important data point at the end of 2023 was at the U.N., where there was an immense pressure campaign by other countries, including some important Western allies of the U.S., like France, pushing for a resolution to get more aid into Gaza. And you ultimately saw the U.S. water down that resolution to the point where it was largely ineffectual. And that, to me, was a measure of, you know, even at the deadline that that was quietly communicated to the Israelis, even at the end of that deadline, the Israelis were given the message, your support remains largely unconditional. Alongside this discourse around the idea of a lower intensity campaign, there's also you know, various pointers towards a different way of resolving or moving on to an, another stage, which is effectively to slam the accelerator to the floor and and escalate things. On the one hand, we've seen multiple reports of Israeli government officials, including Netanyahu himself, lobbying for states, in particular Egypt, but not Egypt alone, to accept large numbers of Palestinian refugees transferred from Gaza. This has been promoted under the the slogan of voluntary migration, although it's difficult to see how you could describe migration from Gaza under the current conditions as being in any meaningful way voluntary. But this is something that is being uh, promoted by 
government officials from Israel, whether or not it's realistic. And at the same time, there have been various signs and straws in the wind about potentially spreading the conflict. Of course, there's the standoff because of the Houthi movement in Yemen uh, attempting to block the passage of Israeli or Israeli-bound ships through the Red Sea. Uh, just today, we had reports of what appears to be an Israeli drone attack in Lebanon, killing a mass commander who's based in Beirut. And of course, there's the question of Iran as well. So is there a fear on, on the part of the Biden administration that whether they intend it or not, whether they want it or not, they may be dragged into this kind of wider escalation? And is there a sense that it would be better for US interests to, to begin winding things down before it gets completely out of hand? There's certainly a strong fear, and Secretary Blinken is very attuned to this. I would say Jake Sullivan probably is also quite attuned to it. Something someone said to me that has really stuck with me in recent days and is so dark to think of, but that is really how Washington and the US foreign policy establishment work, is, you know, yes, it's the president and he's been doing this a long time, but Jake Sullivan has a lot of influence and he is going to want more jobs in the future. And so he may have just a personal incentive to not be associated with like a tremendous tragedy, right? He's like less than 50 years old. What's he going to do for the rest of his life? Uh, so that that's a factor. I think what you may see happen is the US sort of rely on others to create this pressure, right? So Egypt has very much put a red line on this idea of forced migration of Palestinians out of Gaza. And Israel really needs its relationship with Egypt. Can't do without it. Closest neighbor, huge, like more than 100 million people, huge military. So the Biden administration may not need to be the one on that point kind of putting the pressure. And Arab states, I mean, Israel also really, really wants a deal with Saudi Arabia just for itself. I mean, it's a US goal, but it's also very much a Netanyahu goal. The Saudis would not want that. You, there was a recent poll showing 96% of Saudis right now do not want normalization with Israel. And yes, it is an absolute monarchy, but you know, 96% is a pretty high number of your people to go against. In terms of the Lebanon, Lebanon conflict, that's the one file on which the US has been willing to exert some pressure. Uh, we saw a Wall Street Journal report on December 23rd saying that Biden had, in the aftermath of the October 7th attack, stopped Israel from launching a strike in Lebanon. I think what we need to now see is whether Israel gave a heads up before launching the strike today um, and what the U.S. plan is for managing tensions. But that's, Lebanon is the real crisis point and point of concern. Houthis and shipping is important. It's surprising, but there's a lot of interest at play there that will try to keep a lid on things. The Houthis don't want a bigger war in Yemen. It's been devastated. They uh, are not as close to Iran as you know people think. They're certainly not controlled by Iran. Uh, but Lebanon is a place where there are huge Iranian equities and Hezbollah is hugely armed. And, you know, just like the Israelis have a domestic audience to play to, Hezbollah does as well. And it doesn't look very good to not respond to a drone strike in the capital of Lebanon. After the US vetoed another resolution calling for a ceasefire in December, Matthew Miller of the State Department claimed that American leadership was still alive and well. After the events of, uh, of Friday, um, 
particularly the veto at the Security Council, the Secretary's meeting with the Arab uh, and Islamic foreign ministers, and then the emergency determination on the tank munitions uh, to Israel. I I'm just wondering, are you guys aware of how isolated you are? So I would answer that by saying every time we engage with one of our partners in the region and our partners around the world, what the Secretary hears is the indispensability of American leadership, um, both in helping to resolve this conflict and uh, bringing into it that guarantees the destruction of Hamas and in planning for um, uh, the days and weeks and months and years to come. Now, that doesn't mean that we have agreements with everyone in the region about the best way forward. Obviously, we don't. Um, there are a number of countries that have called for a ceasefire. We've made clear that while we support humanitarian pauses, um, we think a ceasefire that would allow the leadership of Hamas that plotted and planned and October 7th to continue to carry on in Gaza and plan future attacks is one that's unacceptable. While we have disagreements, ultimately, that American leadership is critical both in this conflict and to broader issues in the region. And do you think that you are demonstrating American leadership? Yeah. Absolutely, and that, and that and that does not mean that we are going to agree with every country um, uh, about everything. How about every, how about any country. So you don't I agree with any country. That is that is not at all. That is not at all. We don't agree with Israel on everything related to this conflict. As the final two questions, I want to ask you. They're they're both overlapping in a way because it points to the consequences of what has been happening beyond Palestine and even beyond the wider Middle East. And the first point is about the consequences for US diplomacy, as you were referring to earlier in reference to the dissent among State Department officials. There have been many reports where people from the US and from states allied to the US have been talking about how damaging and, and even devastating this is for the immediate US effort to rally support uh, behind Ukraine and against the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but also looking beyond that potentially to a confrontation with China over Taiwan, uh, which might be the next big flashpoint in the next few years. And you don't have to be naive about this in the way that people can sometimes be in talking about as if the world is instinctively looking to the US to, to provide enlightened leadership. There are certainly many people in the global south who are deeply sceptical about the US for um, well-known historical reasons, but without being in any way wide-eyed or credulous towards China or towards Russia and, and, and seeing them as cynical, self-interested powers as well. So, for example, Vietnam, uh, to take one obvious example in relation to China, Vietnam has no historical reason to be friendly towards the US, but it is a country that's clearly willing to reach out as a balancing act against China. So in that situation, it, it does appear to be an almost historic liability and burden for, for the US to be bearing, to be associated so closely with what Israel is doing. And, and it's understandable that those um, officials in the State Department would, would be keenly aware of that. Is it something that um, Biden and his team are, are fundamentally not concerned about? They think the, the danger is overstated or is it something that they think is a price worth paying? Great way to put that. I think they think it's a price worth paying for them, for, for this president and for his legacy and, and how he perceives Israel in the world. I think you raise a really important point with the global south. For People are not wide-eyed. Uh, they are well aware of the relative power of the US, but they're also well aware of the relative power of Israel, right? So while Joe Biden may have this idea that Israel is 
a sort of babe in the woods surrounded by foxes. I mean, other countries are looking at this and saying, are you kidding? Like they are doing, they are essentially carpet bombing a tiny, tiny, tiny strip of land with 2 million people. And I think you'll see kind of cracks that could uh, be jarring to U.S. officials. One important one to watch is a case at the International Court of Justice, which is not the International Criminal Court, uh, which is a little toothless, but is the International Court of Justice involves all UN member states. And South Africa there has brought claims of genocide against Israel. South Africa is certainly among global South countries, seen as kind of a leader, certainly a leader on the African continent. I wouldn't be surprised if you see other countries kind of pursue other initiatives as well, because I think there had already been so many claims of U.S. hypocrisy in terms of caring about Ukraine, but not caring about various other countries that have been invaded or faced similar struggles, and in some instances being the invader, right? So I think that it's it's the double whammy, right? Had this happened in the absence of Ukraine, perhaps the damage to U.S. credibility wouldn't be that bad, but it's you're already at a pretty low point. And add to that, where in, you know, at the start of 2024, this country could choose to reelect Donald Trump, who gave a middle finger to most of the world. I think that whole collection of points makes it a very dangerous time to be representing the U.S. and to be associated with the U.S. worldwide. And the second question, again, thinking in terms of these long term consequences, but not very long term in terms of the U.S. election cycle, the consequences for domestic politics. We're looking now at a presidential election due to be held this fall all things being equal, it will be another contest between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And there is already considerable evidence that Biden's policy over this is damaging his prospects for re-election. And there is considerable polling evidence that that policy and what Israel is doing in general is unpopular with the Democratic voting constituency and with particular segments of that constituency, such as younger voters, ethnic minority voters, uh, Muslim, Arab Americans, some of whom are especially concentrated in swing states like Michigan. And, and there have been pledges by groups based in Michigan in particular to campaign against a vote for Biden if he doesn't change course over Gaza. So again, is this a case where Biden and his team, and not just in, in, in terms of government officials, but perhaps the wider Democratic Party establishment in Capitol Hill, as well as the White House, don't see this as a real danger. They think that those voters, those constituencies will come back uh, into the fold between now and next autumn. Or is there a, a fear on their part of not being able to manage the backlash on the other side of the question? And in, in that particular context, it's worth mentioning that APAC issued a, a pledge to target those Democratic members of Congress who have been calling for a ceasefire, such as Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar and, and a number of others who haven't been as established as Betmoirs of APAC as uh, Tlaib and, and Omar in particular. The figure of $100 million was, was bandied about there. Just extraordinary sum of money we to be talking about it, targeting uh, a select group of American politicians over one particular issue. Is that a factor that's shaping the, the calculus of the Biden administration and the Democratic leadership? 
I think that primary thinking is the these people will come home, right? The strongest messaging from the Biden campaign has been, well, if you don't like this guy, you know, the other side is Donald Trump, who has a Muslim ban and is anti-migrant and, you know, generally dismissive of the idea of systemic racism and and generally chaotic. Um, I don't know if that's a strong enough argument. You know, I, I, I think we'll see, but it's it's certainly one that, there's immense pushback to already from community leaders in Michigan, Minnesota, Georgia. So I think they'll, they'll have to trot out another argument, but I think they are assuming they can get those people back. In terms of the money from APAC and APAC link groups, another important one to keep an eye on is called Democratic Majority for Israel. These groups have meddled in Democratic primaries for a few years now, right? They, they tried it against Summer Lee out of Pittsburgh, and failed. So I think members members of Congress who are being targeted are kind of ready for that fight. I think some of them may not be. And that will be interesting to see how the ones who, as you say, are not Ilhan Omar, are not Rashid Atalay, the ones who have not been targeted before, how they deal with that. But I think, I think there's a sort of weird wait and hold your breath <laughs> approach right now, you know, because I, I, I do think that Democratic Party organs are assuming that, as usual, foreign policy will not be a top five issue for for voters. That said, we're in a situation where voters also don't seem very happy with the president over the economy. Um, he's about to sign an immigration deal that could turn off a lot of voters of color as well. I think there's a real terrifying wake-up call that will come for Democratic Party operatives in the spring. Many thanks to Akbar Shahid Ahmed for joining us for that interview. You can read more of his reporting on the Biden administration and the Gaza war at the Huffington Post.